The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Will Appleton with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for December 10th, 2022. On November 30th, 2022, the Department of Homeland Security released an updated National Terrorism Advisory System Bulletin, detailing various aspects of the heightened threat environment the country finds itself in, including recent threats to faith-based communities, politically motivated violence, and even domestic actors drawing inspiration from a Slovakian shooter who espoused white supremacist beliefs. In order to try and better understand how the government combats domestic violent extremists, I chose an episode from April 2021. In the episode, Benjamin Wittes sat down with Daniel Byman and Mark Pitcavage to discuss the threat of white supremacist groups, their weaknesses and vulnerabilities, and how U.S. law enforcement can exploit those weaknesses to reduce the threat they pose. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 14th. 2021. A lot of people are expressing anxiety about white supremacist violent terrorism. And yet, in a new Brookings paper, Daniel Byman and Mark Pitcavage say these movements have really devastating weaknesses. Byman is, of course, Lawfare's foreign policy editor and a senior fellow in the Brookings Center for Middle East Policy. Pitcavage is a senior research fellow at the Center of Extremism at the Anti-Defamation League. The paper is entitled Identifying and Exploiting the Weaknesses of the White Supremacist Movement. In it, Byman and Pitcavage argue that while the threat is real, these groups have weaknesses that jihadist terrorists do not. Byman and Pitcavage joined me in the Virtual Jungle Studio to talk about these weaknesses how white supremacist groups are vulnerable, why, and how law enforcement in the United States can exploit them to reduce the threat. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 14th, Identifying and Exploiting the Weaknesses of White Supremacist Groups. So I want to start with why you guys wrote this paper. This is a point in which a a lot of people are warning about the threat of white supremacist terrorism groups or terrorism. And you guys have said, hey, there's a bunch of reasons to think these guys aren't 10 feet tall in the terrorism department. So 
Mark, get us started. Why is it a good time to write a paper saying that the white supremacist terrorist threat has some real limits? Well, you know, I, I think no terrorist movement is really 10 feet tall, but we often have a tendency to assume whatever the whatever the problem of the day is a huge problem. Every terrorist movement, every extremist movement has weaknesses, uh, weaknesses that can be exploited. And, and, and I will say, you know, ha- having followed right-wing extremism for, for decades now, you know, I routinely come across incidents where, you know, extremist plots fail or, or never even are able to, they're never even able to really cobble together what they want to cobble in the first place, or they end up falling far short of their objectives. You know, so much so that sometimes in doing law enforcement trainings, I have actually had to rein back on mentioning some of these incidents just so that people don't begin to underestimate uh, some of these extremists. And so I think it's really important with, you know, whatever extremist or terrorist movement you may be talking about to have a realistic assessment of its capabilities, you know, to include its strengths, but also to analyze its weaknesses because those are things you can exploit. So, Dan, give us a sense of the strengths of this movement, which is the sort of setup of the paper. You say, hey, yeah, there's a real da- there's some real dangers here, but let's remember the weakness. So let's let's go through the strengths and weaknesses as you describe in the paper. What do you see as the principal reason to be alarmed by these groups at this particular time? There are a couple of reasons. Uh, first, uh, just to stress, these are active groups where a number of, I'll say individuals in them, it's not always the group, but sometimes more the movement or the network, um, are trying to kill people. And even in the cases where they're not trying to kill people, they're trying to hurt people or they're trying to intimidate people or make life miserable for a wide range of communities, uh, mainly in the communities of color, but also Jews. Um, A whole bunch of problems we see in American history are still present today. What I would stress, though, is what makes things trickier now is the interaction of this extreme movement with more mainstream voices. And just to avoid you know, any doubts. Uh, Of course, there are huge numbers of Americans who have legitimate concerns about a range of issues uh, on immigration and so on. But what we've seen during the Trump era is a more mainstreaming of some extremist ideas, that whites are under great threat, that when you're discussing immigration, it's a a true grave threat in terms of uh, lots of immigrants are killers, lots of things that are simply false or grossly overstated. And as a result, we're seeing the violence interact more with politics. And whether that is individuals with links to the Trump administration in the past or um, more mainstream right-wing voices that are echoing some of these concerns. And when we talk about terrorism, the danger is not just that uh, terrorists kill people, but also that they shape politics in a broader sense. And that interaction is of concern. So... It it seems to me that one of the other aspects that's of concern to this, which is related to what you just said, and you don't focus on it in the paper, but I want to I want to tease it out now is the the proximity to relatively mainstream politics. So even before you had the Trump movement, there is, you know, a continuum from completely mainstream 
conservatism to racially tinged conservatism to, you know, racist groups to, you know, white supremacist groups and their violent, you know, kind of progeny. And it, it seems to me that it's much easier to, for many more people to move along this spectrum, given that the ideas in it are sort of embedded in the American history than, say, for Al-Qaeda, right, where you could you could describe that kind of uh, spectrum in the Islamic world, but kind of not in the United States. And here, you, I, I do think it's possible to be kind of radicalized along a spectrum of American ideas that lots of people hold. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. I mean, there's always a question when you look at the individual level of why one person acts. But having said that, uh, these are ideas that unfortunately have a long tradition in American life. And knowing that there are people who support different aspects of these ideas, even if they don't support the violent, can allow a person to consider himself a hero and thus act, that they can say, I'm the one that is really standing up when everyone else agrees with me, but they're just afraid, right? And so we saw that um, in the attack on the synagogue in Pittsburgh, where someone said, you know, enough of the optics, right? I'm going in, right? I have to act. And so having a belief that there's a supportive community behind you uh, really does change things. And as you said, there's no equivalent of Americans for Sharia law. There's no large organization like that, but there are large um, networks of Americans that are opposed to immigrants, that are racist, and so on. I do think it's important to to note that you know there are many different uh, movements in the far right and and white supremacist movements of which there are a handful are only a portion of them and that the path from the mainstream to some of these other movements is actually a much easier path to traverse than it is for white supremacists so you know the path between mainstream anti-abortion politics and the extreme wing of the anti-abortion movement is easier to traverse. The same is true for the path um, with anti-immigration extremism or anti-public lands extremism or even the anti-government extremism of the militia movement. And so one of the disadvantages for the white supremacist movement compared to some of these other right-wing extremist movements is that when it comes to overt white supremacy, overt racism and anti-Semitism, there are a lot of people who will balk at take that, taking that final step. That's interesting. Do you distinguish between overt white supremacy and the sort of more nativist, racist elements of the anti-immigrant movement? Well, there, there's certainly overlap between, you know, because the white supremacist movement, or all the white supremacist movements, I should say, are all nativist and xenophobic in their own rights, you know, there is certainly a lot of overlap on the issue of immigration, and sometimes there's general overlap as well, as there are with some other right-wing movements. But, you know, if you want to be an anti-immigration extremist in the United States, you can belong to or support groups that get wide mainstream support, groups some of whose individuals were actually appointed to high positions during the Trump administration. But when you look at hardcore white supremacy, in contrast, you just don't you don't see that same equivalent, right? 
And I think that's an important distinction to make. If you have certain prejudices, anti-Muslim prejudice, anti-immigrant prejudice, there are sort of places on the right where you can operate, you know, in a relatively wide area. But once you are sort of labeled or exposed as a hardcore white supremacist, you're, you're very circumscribed. So this leads to uh, your first sense of the weaknesses. And one of the things I love about this paper is actually the cataloging of the weaknesses of this movement or these movements. And the first one you mention is lack of public support, which this leads neatly into. I'm curious how you measure that. White supremacists are able to turn out modest numbers of people, whether at Charlottesville or, you know, in other places, they often team up with other groups, as in the January 6th riots and insurrection, and it's hard to tell exactly who's who. How do you gauge the lack of public support rather than saying growing public support I, I mean, what what's the basis for confidence that the public support is low? Well, it's pretty it's pretty easy actually because the white supremacist movement is very small. You know, the largest white supremacist groups, leaving aside prison gangs, you know, the largest white supremacist groups, you know, have membership in the low thousands. You you reference Charlottesville, which is the largest public white supremacist event in many years, and, and between 600 and, 600 and 700 white supremacists attended in this singularly large and exceptional event, where for you know most white supremacist events, it's considered a success of 60 people show up. And you, know, you could contrast that to any mainstream social or political or you know, religious movement. Think of the environmental movement and how many millions of people you know, openly you know, associate themselves with the environmental movement. You know, whether you decide at any given point that white supremacy is rising or declining, it's still doing so from a very low level of support. You know, probably not more than one or 200,000 people total in the country with, you know, maybe some unknown number of dabblers or people fairly sympathetic to it beyond that. Now, to, to link this question back to the previous one about the spectrum, there are presumably many people who would not call themselves white supremacists, who would deny being racists, and yet who are to some degree or another attracted to ideation associated with these groups. How much do you think the perception that they lack public support is a perception based on the fact that people are ashamed publicly to associate with them, even though they might actually harbor sort of secret sympathy? And how much of it is that, is that you think people are really drawing a firm line that says, you know, I hate affirmative action and I don't like all this special pleading by minority groups. And I really, really believe in voter ID because I want, I, I don't want to encourage voting among, you know, people who shouldn't necessarily vote, don't want to make it too easy, but who really draw a firm line between those sentiments, uh, which are presumably quite widespread, and, you know, the racism as espoused by groups like these. 
I think you see that in some of the follow-on when there is violence. So as sometimes rhetoric will get very heated, and then when you see a violence that's highly publicized, uh, you know, whether it's the Pittsburgh Synagogue or the El Paso Walmart, you see a wide range of people who normally might have you know viewpoints that are considered you know pretty hostile to minority groups rush to condemn it, right? And what they're trying to do is say, you know, look, I'm not racist, I'm not anti-Semitic, and so on, because the people who are racist are violent, right? So part of the story they're telling to themselves is that they are uh, people of principle who are just against a politically correct view of America, but they will draw the line with regard to violence. And if you look at um, not Charlottesville, but the attempt to have another rally after Charlottesville, but you know the sequel to the Unite the Right, that was another disaster, right? That attracted almost no one. And uh, it was in part because the violence that was present at the original rally really discredited those involved and made it hard for them. They had planned the rally to say, we're trying to bridge to more mainstream views and attract more people on the political right. And I think it had the opposite effect. All right. So your second weakness that you identify is that there are no sanctuaries for white supremacists. Dan, walk us through why this is an important thing that separates this terrorism problem from others of our recent past. So when you look like a group at a group like Al-Qaeda, when you look at the Islamic State, uh, part of what made them so dangerous was that they had a sanctuary. And a sanctuary offers a couple big advantages. Uh, one is that it's a place that you can, you can train. You can take people who might be enthusiastic but who are unskilled. You could teach them how to use weapons. You could teach them how to build bombs. You could teach them trade crafts so they blend in. And as a result, they become far more lethal. Um, a second thing, though, is you can indoctrinate people. So at a sanctuary, you can bring someone in who might have gone to Syria because they don't like the Assad regime killing um, hundreds of thousands of its own citizens. And you could say, hey, you're not just here because of Assad. There's a broader struggle, and that includes fighting the United States or other countries. So you can change someone's worldview while they're there. And one of the biggest advantages is you can hide from authorities while you're in a sanctuary. So it's a place you don't have to worry about being arrested, where leaders don't have to worry about being killed. And so there are all these advantages to having a sanctuary. And this is something that if you look at U.S. military manuals or a lot of the research on terrorism, they warn about the dangers when these groups have a certain degree of freedom. And although you can talk about some of the freedoms these groups have enjoyed in recent years because the U.S. government wasn't paying 100% attention, there's no comparison to the sanctuaries that a group like al-Qaeda enjoyed when the uh, Taliban was in power in Afghanistan in the 1990s, say. Yeah, so I want to talk about quasi-sanctuaries, right? I agree with you, there is no Afghanistan or Sudan or southern Lebanon for Hezbollah. But, you know, there are these places where some of these groups organize where they get away with quite a lot. You know, they're not, they're not running terrorist training camps, but they are running militias. They are, you know, behaving with some impunity with respect to, you know, open carry and there's a lot of training that they can do and organizing that they can do that is solidly within the protection of 
the First and Second Amendments, respectively, to the point that you have these kind of relatively organized Bundy-type encampments where people are quite heavily armed, and uh, it is all pretty tolerated by the federal government. And my so my question is, what is the thing that a sanctuary gives you that they don't have here? Well, I think it's I think it's important to to recognize first that that anybody can do things that are legal in this country, and so you can open carry if the law permits it. You can form an armed group if the law permits it. And when we're talking here about sort of crossing the line into illegal activity, but I don't I don't think there are places in this country where where there are sizable numbers of extremists who actually can cross the line into criminal activity with impunity. There are prosecutions of extremists for terrorist plots or attacks in every corner of this country, you know, on a regular basis. And the bottom line is if if you start an extremist group like a white supremacist group in this country with the purpose of committing violence, you're not going to last very long before the FBI is all over you and, you know, is essentially trying to dismantle you. You know, and it's been that way for quite some time in this country, too. All right. Third weakness is is that the resources don't match the desires. So walk us through that one. Why isn't that true of most terrorist groups. I mean, you want to liberate Puerto Rico from United States rule. Um, I'm not sure what that would cost in resources, but I don't think the Puerto Rican nationalist groups really ever had the resources to do that. How does this separate these groups from most other terrorist groups with, you know, bigger eyes than, than stomachs? I think you're right that this weakness applies to the vast majority of terrorist groups. Uh, you know, there are the Hezbollahs of the world that are very capable, but in the majority of cases, these groups aren't particularly capable. And this is something that I think often, you know, reporters who haven't covered a story for some time often miss, which is that in the aftermath of a particular attack or something, they'll focus on how dangerous these groups are and often focus on their rhetoric or on their plans without recognizing how far they are from being able to do attacks in a consistent way. And what I would say, though, about the white supremacist world is that the groups themselves tend to be very small and weak. So you do have a broader movement and network that's um, reasonably coherent and strong in some ways. But in terms of actually being able to have a group that is planning attacks, that is doing sophisticated operations, that if you look at something like you know the, uh, the 9-11 attacks or the 1998 embassy attacks or the Paris attacks, these took a lot of planning, a lot of resources, a range of skilled personnel, and uh, quite a bit of time. And these things tend to be lacking with the white supremacist groups. That doesn't mean someone can't pick up an AR-15 and go into a synagogue or a black church and kill people, right? We've seen that, and we'll, sadly enough, I think we'll see it again. But in terms of the ability to do sustained, sophisticated operations, that's a big jump, and these groups just don't have it for the most part. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. 
Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Is there any sense that they are developing it? I mean, one of the things that I've been struck by about most of these groups is that they actually don't seem to be increasing in sophistication. You know, the the most sophisticated white supremacist or militia-inspired events in the United States of the last bunch of years are mostly lone or dual actor events. So, you know, fertilizer bombs in two cases, right? But you don't see the systematic development of capacity the way you do with, say, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula or Hezbollah, they seem mostly content to gather in small groups and commit what we would think of as hate crimes. I think it's important to, to, to realize that you know, this, this, this question gets back to the previous uh, area that we discussed which is that white supremacists have no safe havens. So they can't develop like an Al-Qaeda could have developed because as soon as they try, law enforcement takes them down. And in fact, when you look at right-wing extremist groups in the United States and, and especially white supremacist groups, you know, a lot of these groups, they don't exist for the purposes of committing terrorist acts. They don't exist for the purpose of committing violence. You know, many of them learned over the years the hard way by looking at all sorts of groups and individuals who tried and failed that one of the quickest ways to get yourself in trouble is as a group to try and, you know, launch some sort of terrorist campaign. And they've learned by that. And they also, they've also learned that, that they're open to civil liability as well as criminal liability too. And so many of these groups are reluctant to, as groups, engage in violence. And, and in a sense, what they are, they act as finishing schools for extremists, where they help bring extremists in and radicalize them. And for some of them, get them hot and bothered. 
And then some of those extremists as lone wolves or informal cells or networks, they go off on their own and do something. But extremist groups in the United States simply, you know, by and large, do not function the same way terrorist groups in many lawless or semi-lawless areas are able to function. They serve a different purpose here. All right. The next one you identify is that civil society limits the effectiveness of the group. So I'm I'm curious about this one. It's a relatively brief section of of the discussion. What do you mean by that? How does how does what parts of civil society do this? Well, I would say every part of civil society from organizations that specifically try to deal with extremism or terrorism or or other related areas like civil rights or human rights, all the way to individuals. And I, I think, you know, one telling thing about the Capitol storming and the, the hundreds of people who have been arrested in the past couple months of the Capitol storming is how very many of them were arrested because they were outed by their coworkers, their family members, their their romantic partners, their schoolmates, their bosses, their coworkers, their neighbors. I mean, there were plenty of people willing to dish on these guys and give them right over to the FBI. And and of course, that's just with the capital storming. If if we were talking about a group, you know, some sort of similar thing that was involved only white supremacists and not, you know, a variety of different type of fringe movements, you know, I think you would see even more of a reaction that way. You know, there are plenty of people in the United States who are quite willing to take action on an individual or an organized basis uh, to combat something like white supremacy. Let me add that there's a lot of niche capability that civil society adds to government, right? So a lot of the tips in terms of, you know, reporting people are done by groups like, you know, what Mark does for the ADL, that are people who are monitoring these organizations and are warning when they're going from just racist talk to violent action. And uh, we also have groups and individuals who are dedicated on the social media side to understanding and monitoring this as well. And I would stress a point that Mark raised earlier, which is uh, these groups are also vulnerable on civil liability. And what we've seen are several organizations truly destroyed as a result, that they've lost their limited resources, they've been devastated financially and had to close and shut down activities uh, because of lawsuits brought by civil society organizations. Uh, When we talk about international terrorism, often civil society is kind of treated as a well-meaning bullet point uh, when you're saying, oh, it'd be nice if civil society did some stuff too. But when it comes to fighting uh, groups in the United States, civil society is often the leading role, not a secondary role. What about the part of civil society that is closest to the violent groups? So is there any evidence that groups that are ideologically sympathetic or groups that are ideologically not sympathetic but kind of close along a certain axis have a restraining effect on any of the people in question, i.e., Somebody, you know, reaches out and taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, look, if you want to, you know, train and exercise your Second Amendment rights, I'm, I'm right there with you. If you don't like black people and Jews, I'm not going to argue with you. But, you know, if you're going to if you're going to go do really bad things, I'm going to have to turn you into the bureau. Is, is there any evidence that that 
kind of stuff exists or is it mostly civil society opposing the group's type that that operates as a restraint? I'm not sure if I would describe the type of groups you're describing as civil society, sort of in the sense that we're talking about to begin with. But I will say that with regard to those types of groups, there is a role that they actually can play in inhibiting the most hardcore types of extremism or extremist violence. And that is by offering alternatives for theoretical or potential recruits. So, so for example, you know, there are some people who, because they're afraid that, you know, some huge government conspiracy is going to take their guns away. And so they join a militia group and maybe indoctrinated with militia ideology and, you know, may possibly at some point plot or commit a violent act. But if, on the other hand, they turn to operating within a mainstream um, right to keep and bear arms group instead, where they have an outlet that works, you know, within the system to try and achieve their goals, as opposed to violent alternative means, then that person never gets channeled into an area where they might end up committing violent acts. So I, I do think having sort of mainstream or quasi-mainstream alternatives on the right you know, can actually take away some of the potential recruits who might otherwise go to some of the more extreme groups or movements. So finally, you uh, talk about how these groups, oh, uh, penultimately, I should say, talk about how these groups have weak international ties. So this actually cuts against, to some degree, the current thinking of a lot of people on on this subject, where they sort of stress the, you know, international white supremacy associated with, uh, you know, behind the thinking of the Christchurch shooter, as well as uh, Jessica Stern in her recent book about uh, Radovan Karadzic points out how, you know, white supremacist groups from kind of all over the place have kind of rallied behind Karadzic as a, as a sort of spiritual figure. I'm curious that despite that I I think sort of very live meme. You guys think the international ties are weak, so so justify that. So there is a lot of attention to the international ties, and and I would agree that especially with the spread of social media, that you do have ideas flowing more easily, and you have models flowing more e- easily. So someone like Breivik in Norway, or uh, Brendan Tarrant in uh, Christchurch, New Zealand, these are people who are discussed and admired um, by white supremacists around the world. So there's no question that there is discourse. And then you do see some individuals going to places like Ukraine to fight. So there is travel and so on. And, and there is, so this is a real thing. Um, however, when you compare it to other forms of terrorism in recent history, there's just a lot less going on. So we talked when we talked about sanctuaries, about jihadist groups. And there you had individuals coming from around the world, gathering in one place, exchanging ideas, exchanging tactics and training, and all coming away a lot more lethal. Again, you don't have that equivalent. Uh, But we also saw that on the left-wing side, where in the Soviet days, the Soviet Union and its Eastern European allies were sponsoring a fair number of groups, and they were getting some of the local groups to actually sponsor other groups and individuals as well. So you saw saw a lot of very lethal connections on the violent far left during that period. Uh, So thankfully, we haven't seen those equivalents among the white supremacists. Again, I don't want to say there's nothing going on because there's a lot going on. But by comparison, I think it's um, much more limited phenomena. And how does this inhibit them? I mean, 
you know, the United States is a big place. There are a lot of white supremacists. Why do they need their Australian and Norwegian comrades in arms in order to to be effective? So they certainly don't need them to be effective. Um, however, if you have robust international networks, you could talk about uh, money that's flowing back and forth internationally. You could talk about training and capabilities that our one group can give another and then make local groups more dangerous. Um, you could talk about command and control where groups are being controlled by outsiders who are enjoying a degree of haven. All these things are lacking. So it's certainly, you know, the U.S. Um, history is is quite clear that white supremacist groups can be incredibly violent and effective uh, without international ties. But the potential to have international havens and international networks could make groups more dangerous. And it's important to recognize that even as we see some degree of greater internationalization, that it's not on the same scale. So finally, you identify divisions over priorities and targets as the the last major uh, weakness. This will come as a surprise to some listeners who think about white supremacist groups as interested in killing blacks and Jews and Muslims. And sometimes, you know, you make a mistake and you shoot up a Sikh uh, Gudwara instead of a mosque. But uh, you guys argue that there's actually significant division here and that the the onion peels in in at many layers so what's the impediment to greater unity among these groups well there there's there's actually a, a wide range of of different impediments starting with the fact that there's not one you know unified or singular um, white supremacist movement depending upon how you slice it there's six to eight major subcomponents of the white supremacist movement and other individual groups that don't neatly fit within any of those. And they all may have, you know, somewhat different goals or aspirations or means, and and some of which may even conflict with each other. Not all of them even necessarily agree that, that violence is actually the best way to achieve their goals in the first place. And then, you know, the, the mere fact of the way violence occurs in the United States by white supremacists, which is, again, not typically groups acting as groups, but lone wolves, small informal cells, means you have a bunch of different tiny little entities, each attacking what they either want to or what they can um, without there necessarily being rhyme or reason or a greater strategy behind it. And, And they do have an extraordinarily long target list. I mean, certainly we think in terms of them wanting to attack various types of religious or ethnic or racial minorities, but they also quite frequently attack federal, state, local government, or law enforcement, and then a whole long list of other things that they will do in lesser amounts, from abortion clinics to places that are related to pornography, to banks and armored cars, to uh, infrastructure, communications, the media. I mean, the list is actually a very long list, and there's no overarching strategy behind it. You know, when you look at a movement like ISIS, you know, there really is sort of uh, to some degree, is sort of a guiding hand behind it, right? A particular goal and certain tactics that are especially uh, chosen to achieve that goal. There's just no equivalent of that in the white supremacist landscape. Uh, something I think is is useful to do is to consider the problem, if you will, from the point of view of a violent white supremacist, right? And so if you're thinking about that, you know, the goal is not simply to kill people. 
right? The goal is to change society in ways that make it more favorable to your cause, right? So that can be reducing or ideally from their point of view, ending immigration, the subordination of people of color, whatever you will. And because there are so many divisions, it's very hard for them to make progress on any single one of these goals. And as Mark said, sometimes the actions of one group further discredit the cause as a whole. So one group might feel it's making progress, and then you have a violent attack, and it sets everything back. And those divisions are quite profound. It doesn't mean they can't use violence, but it does make it much harder for them to achieve anything politically, which for most of these people is actually what they want to do. All right. So we've laid out a whole series of weaknesses here. And now you guys are Chris Ray, and you've testified that this is uh, the most or one of the most substantial counterterrorism threats uh, the United States is facing. How do you exploit these weaknesses to be a more effective counterterrorism policy? Well, there there are a number of ways you can exploit the weaknesses. You know, different ways for for different types of weakness. I'll offer one, and I'm sure Dan has has others to add. The fact that white supremacists in the United States tend to be high intent, low capability, offers a a real opportunity for law enforcement to step in and ensnare them um, before they can actually commit a violent act by purporting to offer them the, the means that they lack, whether it's weapons or money or explosives or access. They could say, you know, you want to blow up a federal building? Well, I know a guy who knows a guy who maybe can get you those explosives. And all too often, the extremists will leap at that opportunity because they they don't have those skills or resources themselves. And at that point, they've opened themselves up to criminal liability and law enforcement can come in and get them before they ever could have either carried out a grandiose attack or more likely turn to sort of a more realistic plan B, like picking up a, an assault rifle and, and going on a shooting spree. And so, you know, knowing the weaknesses that white supremacists have, there are a lot of ways that you can go about trying to trying to exploit them. So let me add on, I think these points all kind of come together when we talk about lack of public support and civil society efforts and no sanctuaries, which is that the white supremacist groups are very vulnerable to action by their neighbors and communities and concerned citizens. And A big reason that they've had some degree of success in the last five years is that there hasn't been a sustained campaign against them. There's been kind of day-to-day efforts by FBI and um, local law enforcement that have often been impressive. But if you really put this on steroids, many of these groups leave a very visible trail and are known to their communities. They have nowhere to hide. They have nowhere to go to if there is pressure on them. And as a result, government campaigns against them can be very effective. And to go to Mark's point of view about limited resources, uh, many of them commit an array of low-level crimes simply to sustain their activities. And so they're vulnerable to criminal charges as well, and that can be used to snowball. You can arrest someone for a criminal charge, and in order for a certain degree of leniency, you can get that person to inform on their comrades. And this happens again and again. So from a counterterrorism point of view, there are a a lot of opportunities and simply more resources and attention and aggressive efforts can allow a lot of success. And how much of that do you estimate is happening now and how much of it would require a change of policy and focus to make it happen? So in in my sense, uh, certainly some of it is happening now. And uh, part of this is the 
overlap of white supremacists with a range of uh, far-right extremists and conspiracy theorists that we saw with the uh, assault on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, where obviously it's a massive federal investigation where there have been hundreds of arrests, and it's likely to have a pretty substantial effect on any of the organized groups that had some degree of involvement. And it's also going to be reveal a lot of individuals and networks that hadn't received focus yet. So that's one thing that is already a dramatic change. And I think whether it's at the White House or at the FBI level, I think there are a lot of people who are waiting to act until there was an administration more committed to to fighting white supremacists. And so there was a lot of latent potential that I think is opening up as well. And to me, a lot of this is simply about resourcing. I think there is a lot of capability that could be launched, but it requires a lot of kind of humans to be able to trace the data, to do the investigations, to go after individuals. And so resourcing will be very important. We're going to leave it there. Dan Byman, Mark Pitkavage, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is the estimable Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare podcast. Share us on Facebook, tweet us, pin us on Pinterest, and upvote us on Reddit. And for heaven's sake, leave a rating or review wherever you found us. Our merch is available at thelawfarestore.com. The Lawfare podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. Quote at AAA.com slash insurance and save by bundling auto and home. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.